we're working on that because there are some other people going to be having babies here soon. But we have a, a baby meal train if you would like to sign up for that. It's on what we call the city. If you have no idea what this city is, you can ask myself or Pastor Andy and we'll get you signed up for that. And you can sign up to maybe get a meal to one of these folks uh, here in the next couple weeks. Women's Training Day is coming up Saturday, May 20th. A uh, great time for you all to, uh, for the ladies to uh, spend some time together learning from God's Word. Um, it's going to be a really great day. It starts at 8.30, and we'd like you to sign up to bring a brunch item to share. Breakfast, lunch, so you got that right. Okay, brunch item to share. I might sneak in and take a sampler of that. That sounds pretty good. Good food. Um, and last, but certainly not least, Alexis has, uh, is one of our college students that's part of our church. She's been out in our lobby the last couple of weeks. She wanted to thank everyone. She's uh, fully raised uh, the support that she needs to go to Tanzania on her missions trip. So thank, uh, thank you to all those who, who gave to that. Uh, we're very grateful that God has blessed us and we're able to give um, to things of that nature. All right, I'm going to have you stand with me. And I'm going to read a little bit out of Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. We do stand for the reading of God's word. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, it is great to be in your presence this morning. It's great to know that we have a family that you died for. It's called the church family. Uh, Those who have been saved by you, those who... uh, Uh, you died for on the cross, rose again from the grave, that they can experience eternal life. I pray for those folks who uh, do know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be a day to remind you that it's through Jesus alone that we live, we move, and we have our being. For those who don't know Jesus, I pray that in their hearts they would experience uh, the darkness of separation from you, And that they would turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. I wanted to start today by talking a little bit about a word that you have heard many, many times. The word is religion. Religion. Uh, Strangely enough, the word religion is only mentioned a few times in Scripture. It's not something that the Bible talks a lot about. Although we know that Christians... Uh, and the, the religion of Christianity is a system of a religion. It's a, an institutionalized system of beliefs and practice. It's, again, not a common word in Scripture. There is actually no word for religion in the Old Testament. It's only found in the New Testament. And I, I was struck by this particular word because Americans claim to be very religious. There was recently a, a survey done, and in that survey, 70% of Americans claim to be Christians as their religion. Uh, I find that to be a startling fact, especially when I look at the reality of our culture, the reality of where we live, the reality uh, of the type of times that we're in. 
And the only explanation that I can give for something as much as 70% of Americans claiming Christianity is that they claim a nominal Christianity. Nominal meaning by name only. By name only. There is not a true belief centered on Jesus Christ and the desire to obey all that he has commanded to be his disciple, as it talks about in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, It's just a nominal Christianity. And one of the theologians that I respect and uh, looked at this week and read some of what he had wrote about what's going on in America is that Jesus is claimed by name only, and it's because there is a misconception of who Jesus is. There are four of them. I believe they're going to be up on the screen for us. But many people who call themselves followers or or Christians, I should say, not followers of Christ, but Christians, claim that Jesus is just a moral guide. He is just the guy who teaches us how to behave, much like a Gandhi or some other religious leader, that his morals are what we should follow. He is not necessarily God. He is not necessarily deity. He's just a moral guide for our lives. So, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, Jesus said that that's a pretty good thing to follow. He did that. He didn't steal. And so I'm going to follow in his example of being a moral guide. Uh, Jesus is also considered by many of us in the culture to be a therapist. A therapist. Let me talk a, a little bit about that probably the most rampant one, but the therapist is we go to Jesus to fix our emotional baggage. Um, He is the great Freud in the sky sitting on his chair while we lay down on the couch and he asks us questions about our struggles so he can, through therapy and through some some good uh, advice and discussion, fix our emotional baggage. Jesus, to many, is just a therapist. Third, Jesus is, is, is known as a lover. This was a, a, a term that was written about, and I read this article this week by a theologian named Rod Rosenblatt. This is big too. It's very similar to therapist. Jesus as lover is the Jesus who through my inner experience, I know that I'm a follower of Christ has nothing to do with truth. It has a lot to do with my feelings. So Jesus is is in charge of my mystical inner experience. And if I'm not experiencing that, I'm not experiencing Jesus as He said He he was. I'm, I'm just wanting to have a feeling inside that makes me know I know God. That is a nominal belief system. That is something that guides a claim to know Jesus in name only. And then this last one, a big popular one, my personal power player. Um, if you know hockey, you've got to have an enforcer, right? Jesus is my enforcer. Don't mess with me. He will check you into the boards. Uh, another way that we think of Jesus as the power player is the Jesus who gives me, <clears throat> because of his power and his love for me, he gives me everything I want. There's something that is very prevalent. And we have actually, from the American church, exported this overseas And it is now leading many people to despair and destruction. Something called the health and wealth gospel. If I know Jesus, I will be healthy. He will line my pocketbook with lots of money. That's the personal power player, Jesus. Those who claim that Jesus are nominal in their belief. Now, what's interesting is not only are all of us, uh, excuse me, not only do 70% 
uh, folks claim Christianity, but all of us in one way or another are religious. Doesn't matter if you even nominally claim Christ. If you're an atheist, you are religious because the definition of religion is an institutionalized system of beliefs and practices. And there has always been misconceptions of what religion is. Always been misconceptions about that. And in the Christian church, there have always been misconceptions of who Jesus is, even in what was formed as the Christian church in the first century. Let me read to you a passage out of 2 Corinthians uh, verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. This is straight out of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, Every Christian can be deceived into following a Jesus who is not the Jesus of Scripture. It's it's a Jesus who is proclaimed as another Christ, another Jesus, someone other than the one spoken of in Scripture. And this is the thing that really um, kills me is we have a thorough understanding of who Jesus is in Scripture and we choose not to read it. We choose not to believe it. We choose not to embrace that Jesus. That is how people get off course. That is how nominal Christianity has sprouted up in our country and around the world is because we proclaim another Jesus. Now the reformers, and we're doing a series, by the way, on the five solas of the Reformation to nail us down to the bedrock foundation of who we are as followers of Christ, the reformers understood that the teaching of their day was proclaiming another Jesus that looked like the real one, but was another Christ, a different Christ. And they brought us back and they said, this is the reason why we are going to talk about Christ alone or sola Christus. We need to get back to the Jesus of the Bible because we can be deceived to think we're following him when we're really following another Christ. So today we're going to look at four things I believe are really important in terms of what the reformers taught and what the bedrock of the Christian faith is in calling for sola Christus or Jesus alone through Christ alone. This is the first teaching for today. Jesus is God. Okay. Now you're saying, well, duh. Um, you know, I, I know that I'm a Christian and I, I say that I believe that. Um, I think that at times we need to be reminded of what Jesus being God really means. Now, one of the greatest passages that talk about Jesus being God is in the very first chapter and the very first ber- verse of that chapter in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, if you don't know, was written for a Greek mindset. And we kind of in the Western culture have come from a Greek mindset. But this is John's words in his gospel about who Jesus is. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that's Jesus. 
And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word was God. Okay, so nominal Christianity who believes Jesus is just another good guy that I'm supposed to follow as a moral guide, you have a problem here because throughout Scripture, not just in this passage, but many passages, the writers of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit say that Jesus is God. Verse 2 says, He was in the beginning with God. I just read from Colossians chapter 1 that talks about Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is God. And when I say God, I'm not talking about small g. I'm talking about God in the truest sense of the title God. Okay, so let me explain what that looks like both in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. Jesus being God in the truest sense of that title, God, is this. He is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the uncaused cause. That's what it means in John chapter 1 when it says, In the beginning, before all things, in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus existed as the Son in the Trinity, which we believe is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is the uncaused cause. He is before all things, has never had a beginning, and will never have an end. You had a beginning. You will never have an end. One place you will spend eternity is with God forever. If you know Jesus, He has saved you from your sin. If you don't know Christ, you will spend eternity separated from Him in a real place called hell. But you will exist from this point forward forever. But you had a beginning. Jesus is the uncaused cause. That means He is God. Now, this is the second part of this, and we're, I wish that I could, and maybe I should do a sermon series on Creator God. Just, just that understanding of Creator God and what that means for the mindset and the heart and the understanding of Christian worldview in general. But Jesus is not only eternal, it says in Colossians, He is the Creator. Now, what is creation? Creation is... Saying that there is an eternal being that never had a beginning and never had an end. And he made stuff, created is the fancy word if you want to use that. He created ex nihilo, Latin, write it down, impress your friends. Okay, sola Christus, Jesus alone is the creator and he created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Do you, do you see the irony in that term, ex nihilo? Because people who believe in nothing are called nihilists. That's, what, that's because they want to find in their, uh, their origin nothing. No creator. Because if there's a creator who's eternal and all-powerful and made stuff out of nothing, I have to submit to him. Well, the reformer said sola Christus means that Jesus is the creator, not just the God who made stuff. That's true. He's the God who made stuff. And because of that requires submission and bowing the knee to him. Okay, so creator. Uh, God in the truest sense of the title God also means that Jesus is light. Jesus is light. Now, 
Uh, you know, we, we have some funny ways that we look at light. This is the biblical understanding of what light is. Light is true truth. Okay, not untrue truth. Okay, not fake news or whatever is going on these days. Light is true truth. Now, you and I can have a conversation and things that I say and have opinions about, you can question them, and rightly so, because I am a fallible human being. I have four witnesses. They live at my home. You can talk to them. I make mistakes. I say things maybe at times that aren't true, either purposefully or unpurposefully. Okay? But the point is, you and I can have a conversation. You tell me something that you say is true, I'm going to probably... Because I'm a little cynical, I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to check that one out. I'm not sure I believe you. Uh, you might be right. It might be true. But you're not God. So I'm going to go to the source of objective true truth. I'm going to go to the light. I'm going to go to Jesus to determine if what you say is true is really true. Now, a lot of us don't like that because we want to believe that what we believe is true. And what Jesus is saying is, no, I'm the true truth, and I am the light, and therefore, again, you have to submit to me. This is what true truth really is. It's not one iota of deception or lack of knowledge. Not one iota of deception or lack of knowledge. Jesus will never lie to you, and whatever has come out of his mouth or will come out of his mouth is true. Take it to the bank. Now, secondly, Jesus is the authority. It says in Colossians that he rules over all rulers and dominions. Like we think the president of the United States rules over all things, maybe. Or we think that some grandiose dictator, you know, who is behind the scenes is ruling over all rulers and dominions. Folks, let me encourage you. Jesus is on the throne and he is the ruler over all rulers and dominions. Now the problem is, is that rulers get out of, get out of sorts and Jesus needs to take them to the woodshed and he does a good job of that. You may not see it. You may not understand how that works, but he is the authority over all rulers and all dominions. Lastly, he is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. It says in Colossians 1 that all things hold together through Him. So when you're at your child's baseball game and they lose by one run and you get upset, it's okay. Jesus is holding all things together through Him. Okay, let me give you a more substantial example. When one of your relatives is stricken with cancer and you're looking into the future and saying, wow, I'm going to have to face the death. They're going to have to face the, their own death. I'm going to have to face the grief of that death and the suffering that happens through that. We as followers of Christ, because Jesus alone holds all things together, we can trust in someone all powerful outside of us to help us make sense of this. Maybe not right now in this moment, but eventually we will know because Jesus holds all things together. Man, that's, that's pretty amazing and it should give us a lot of boldness. And, you know, as our church has matured over the last 10 years, we're about 10 years old uh, here in the, this coming summer. We should probably have a party for that, Andy, by the way. Would you note that? All right. 
As we mature, we can be bolder because we serve the Christ who alone holds all things together through Him. We can obey every word He has said, not because we are trying to just beat ourselves up or He's wanting to beat us up. We can obey everything He said because He loves us and obedience to Him is showing Him love and it's the best way for us to live this life. He holds all things together. Be bold. So Jesus is God and this is the point. What He says about Himself and who he has been described to be in scriptures is true truth. So, like the day of the reformers, many people were playing games with Jesus alone is God, Jesus alone is truth, Jesus alone is all-powerful, Jesus alone can save us from our sins, and we'll get to that here in a second. Because of those, those things, those are, those are true things, we still play games. We still look to him as moral guide. We still look to him as therapist. We still look to him as our personal power player or the lover who wants to make my inner hugs be that much more enrapturous. That's not the the Jesus alone that the reformers spoke of and they had to get us back to that. Um, We want to change who Jesus is for our own gain and we want to appear that we're more important and powerful than Christ. That's why we play games with Jesus. It's not because he's a bad guy or that it's not true. We just think that we're more special. And for our own gain and for the gain of the people that the reformers were speaking against, they wanted to gain power and more influence and be more powerful than Jesus. Does that story sound familiar? Folks, that is the story from Genesis to Revelation. We want to be more powerful and more important than Christ And so we're unwilling to submit to Him. We're unwilling to say, you need to be Lord. You need to be King. And so what the church did at the time, and this was the church, by the way, the church of the day where the reformers were, they said, you know what? Jesus is pretty good, but you need to do some things to earn your salvation. Um, Depending on what scholar you look at, there's either 12 things, 6 things, whatever it is, there's... There's a process of works that you need to go through to cooperate with Jesus in your salvation. Now, that sounds really good. And it, it's, it's a, a really good uh, a guilt tactic to keep people in line. Say, hey, man, yeah, Jesus may have saved you, but you need to cooperate with that salvation. And you need to contribute to it or else, you know, you're not going to earn it. And what the reformers said is, no, the works don't save you. Jesus alone saves you. Then there's the spirituality-oriented salvation. This was the rise of the mystics. In the time of the Reformation, there were people who would say, you need to experience a deeper level of spirituality to prove that you know Jesus. And so they would go into a monastery And literally whipped themselves on the back and practiced asceticism to prove that they could withstand what Jesus withstood. And that was a mystical um, uh, pain-inducing process that made them more spiritual. And, And this is what's interesting. This is exactly the kind of stuff that groups like Hindus and Buddhists do. 
Hindus, if you want to become more spiritual and rise to a different level of spirituality, you sit cross-legged with your underwear on and you get into a rocking position where you're kind of like those uh, things you see on, on TV late night, those things that kind of wobble and they keep wobbling uh, through inertia. I don't know what the physical principle is. I should know. Uh, I took physics, believe it or not. But you get to rocking and you stare at the sun with your eyes open until you go blind. And that makes you more spiritual. Crazy. What are we thinking? Well, for us to look at that and say, that's crazy, we have to look at asceticism, mysticism of all kinds, and say, if you think you can earn more spirituality or attain a higher level of spirituality through uh, some sort of mystical practice, you're wrong. Jesus alone not only saves you, He grows you. That was what the Reformation was about. Sola Christus. Christ alone is Lord and Savior. Christ alone is the only perfect sacrifice. You can't morally earn your way to God. Christ alone has the only power to call and to save those who He calls His children. And Christ alone is the only mediator between God and man. We'll talk about that one here in a moment. Second teaching. Jesus is the Lord and the Savior. Um, I need to go to 1 Timothy on my smartphone uh, because I'm not that smart. And I'm going to read to you verse uh, 15 of chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Here we go. Which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, And the Lord of Lords, let me uh, read briefly part of 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal uh, dominion. Amen. There are three passages that talk about Jesus in the New Testament. There's many more. But in the New Testament, there's three specifically that talk about Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The other two, I can't read because I'd probably break down in tears out of the awe of who God is. But 1 Timothy 6.15 says that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I just want to focus on Lord of Lords. Let me tell you what that means. The word Lord in the Greek means this. Master, owner, ruler, and sir. Okay? Now I like that. Because I try to teach my kids, hey man, when there's an authority figure in your life, you need to say, yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am. You need to understand that they're in authority over you, and you need to say yes sir when they ask you to do something. It's worked out many times okay. Sometimes not so much, right? But when I'm at home, I love it when my kids say, hey, could you clean the, the car out? We're going on a trip, and could you vacuum it out? Yes sir. Ooh, I like that. I'm going to mark down the day. I like that. Okay? I, I like it on the, the, the football field when I coach. And I say, hey man, you need to throw your body at that other kid's body at 100 miles per hour and I don't care if you get hurt. And they say, yes sir. Okay, now I never say that. <laughs> One of my coaches is over here. He'll tell you I don't say that. 
Jesus is the ultimate sir. He is the ultimate master, owner, ruler. He is the ultimate authority. It says in scripture very clearly, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the ruler over all other rulers. Now, in the context of 1 Timothy, of what he's talking about, right before this verse, uh, Paul says to Timothy, and I love this, be aware of false teachers. Okay, now why does he say that? He says that because false teachers want to be the Lord of your life. They want you to submit to them and they want to tyrannize you. Then he says, a little later, right before this verse, fight the good fight. Fight against the tyranny of false teaching so you will not be enslaved to any other ruler other than Jesus Christ. You, as a follower of Christ, are a bond servant to Jesus. It, it could be even translated slave to Christ. And to Jesus alone are you a bond servant or slave. And why is that? Because He alone is the perfect Master. Okay? One of the reasons why I really love our country is because it was founded on the principle that Jesus alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the perfect master. He doesn't want to tyrannize you. He wants to love you as you serve Him and submit to Him. And He wants to cause you to be obedient to Him because He has created life. He is the perfect master. i got to move quick. Next teaching. Jesus is our only perfect true sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 9 and Hebrews 10, 1. Let me read them for you. Hebrews 9, 9. Um, and this is small print. Okay, here we go. I'm going to start in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this, uh, this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What, a, what in the world is the writer Peter saying about Jesus in this? He's saying that, hey, in the Old Testament, there was this temple and you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and you had to do things, but doing those acts of worship could not perfect you. Only Jesus can perfect you. But many, many times what we try to do is make other sacrifices. We don't trust that Jesus is the only perfect and true sacrifice. Why do we think that? Because we don't think sin is as bad as it really is. We think our sacrifice should be sufficient. And we get angry when it's not accepted. What does that sound like? Cain and Abel, remember that? Abel brings a great sacrifice. God accepts it. It doesn't perfect him, but God says, this is the sacrifice I want. Abel says, okay, here it is. God's pleased with that. God is not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, even though it is a sacrifice. It's an act of worship. God, why aren't you satisfied with my act of worship. It's because it's not what I commanded you to do and it can't perfect you. And because of that, I want you to be obedient and I want you to look forward to the cross because that is the only perfect sacrifice. And what does Cain do? He goes and kills his brother. We get angry when God doesn't accept our sacrifices because we want our religion to be ours. We want to create it. We want to drive it forward. Only Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, 
can make us perfect. Let me read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to you. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Only Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, makes us perfect. Jesus alone is the perfect sacrifice. He took our sin to a cross because death is the penalty. A lot of times we don't like that death is the penalty of any sin. We think a a slap on the wrist should be sufficient. Jesus' perfect life is the only sufficient sacrifice. And Jesus even died for our prideful anger that thinks we are mostly good and should be accepted as we are and all our decisions should be accepted as well. He died for our pride. That's why Augustine said, the root of all sin is pride. Now this leads us to the last point. We'll wrap it up. The last teaching in this, uh, in this time. Jesus alone saves sinners. Jesus alone saves sinners. I want to read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 17. It's a long passage. We won't uh, discuss all of it, but I want to take a couple highlights out of this and unpack what Jesus alone saving sinners means. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing <clears throat> excuse me, me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus alone saves sinners. That's a big phrase. Let me unpack it. Uh, this This is the thing. Let's start with sinners. Jesus alone saves sinners. Sinners. All have sinned. Yes, even Americans. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And we giggle at that, but I think we're sophisticated enough to think that we, yeah, we've sinned, but not as bad as some other people. I mean, look at the car I'm driving. How could a person who's a sinner drive a nice car like that? How could a person who's a sinner have the job that I have because of my great abilities and skills to achieve that job. How could a person who can go to these wonderful mountains and have amazing recreational opportunities, how could I really be a sinner? It just doesn't, just doesn't wash with my reality. All of us have sinned. So Jesus alone saves. Let's talk about the word saves. What does he save us from? Well, in Romans it says the wages of sin is death. Death is eternal separation from God forever. And believe me, you want to be saved from this. Jesus talked a little bit about helping the poor. Jesus talked a little bit about, you know, helping the old lady across the street. Actually, there's no verse for that. But he talked about being kind to people. That was pretty important. Jesus talked a little bit about different social 
uh, needs of the day. You know what he talked most about? Saving sinners from the penalty of their sin, which is death. I'm all for doing all the things that we need to do to be the hands and feet of Christ. Okay? But let me tell you about the hands and feet of Christ. They were nailed to a cross for your sins. Jesus alone saves sinners because the wages of sin is, of de- is death. This phrase, Jesus alone. Jesus alone is God and Jesus alone is the perfect sacrifice for your sin. Okay, You cannot save yourself and no other thing other than Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin can save you. And Paul, in this passage I just read, says he is a great sinner. But Jesus overcame his sin through his mercy. He saved Paul. Jesus is glorified by his desire and his power to overcome our sinful rebellion and save his own. That's why the reformer said, Christ alone is Lord and Savior. Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. And Christ alone can save you. So when we come to the communion table, I would ask four things of you. Does this strike in you a chord of humility? That all the things you think are your causes and your desire and your agenda. Is it in line with the Jesus of the Bible? Because if it's not, you need to be humble and repent and come to the table and receive the bread and the juice in a state of humility that Jesus alone can save you? Will you be boldly obedient? That's, the, that's the, probably the biggest thing that is, is heart-wrenching for Christians. We call ourselves followers of Christ. And it says if you're a follower of Christ and you love Him, you will obey everything that He's commanded. Does that mean that we do that perfectly? Of course not. Does it mean that we have to do that to be saved? No, Jesus alone saves us. But don't pretend to follow Christ and then proceed to disobey everything that He's commanded you to do. Bold obedience. Bold proclamation. There is a war that has been going on for the entire existence of humanity for the heart and the mind. And as Christians are silent Satan, the world, and the flesh wins. Boldly proclaim that Jesus alone can save. That Jesus alone has saved you. And that you are not superior, but you know the one who is. And then joy. Joy. Um, If you're a dour Christian because you have to submit to the Lord. And you have to do the things that He says. I just think you haven't understood that when Jesus says to obey what he has commanded, it is the pathway to joy. We're going to have communion and baptism. I would ask that you st- uh, stay around till the end of our time together. We're going to do a song, some communion, some baptisms, and then another song. If you're a follower of Christ, you're invited to the communion table to take the bread Dip it in the wine or the juice representing the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The body that was broken so that you could know an eternal God. 
you a finite being that has an eternity to go to. Jesus' body was pierced as the only sacrifice for your sin. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be again in your presence and to speak these truths. I need to hear them because Christ alone is the perfect sacrifice. Christ alone is the mediator for my sin. Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ alone died so that I might live. Christ alone can save people even in this moment who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would capture their heart and for the first time they would come, take communion and celebrate what you did for them on the cross. Pray for our time of baptisms as it is a sign of new life that we die in Christ and, and we come to life in Christ. We die to our sin and we are made alive to obedience because you love us and that is the only pathway to joy. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.